0: This program is part of Full Service Radio, an internet radio station and podcast network with over 32 weekly shows broadcasting from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. All of our hosts are Washington, D.C. locals, covering stuff like music, arts, culture, identity, politics, and so much more. Visit fullserviceradio.org for all of our programming and enjoy the show. And Full Service Radio is also proudly sponsored and supported By Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Direct Message on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. We are live weekly on Wednesdays at 1 p.m., and you can listen anytime at fullserviceradio.org. Direct Message is a radio show by A Creative DC. I'm Morgan West, your host and founder of the A Creative DC Project. This weekly podcast is a dedicated dive into the A Creative DC hashtag feed, and it's time spent with the people and projects who populate this city Digitally and IRL. You've seen us on IG and Twitter at A Creative DC. We have a nearly million strong hashtag feed on social. It is filled with amazing content and events and visuals and art and food and dance and more, but also most importantly, perspective, um, this is episode two of Direct Message. We're getting all the kinks out this week, guys. I'm here today in the full-service radio station at The Line DC with neon artist and sculptor Craig Kraft. That's Craig with a C and Kraft with a K, and you have definitely seen his work. He's the artist behind the large-scale neon sculpture outside the Shaw branch of the DC Public Library. He's responsible for restoring a number of culturally historical neon signs that now live in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And he's found a way to balance a career of commissioned work with time spent cultivating his own studio practice. I first saw his work in 2012 when he had a solo show uh, just down the street at DCAC, um, a gallery in Adams Morgan. And he posts regularly to the Craig Craft Studio Facebook page and also on IG at Craig Craft Studio. We are big on place and context here at Creative DC. So Craig's philosophy holds a lot of appeal. He believes that an artist must consider the site the same way in which he views the art. For every place he puts an object affects how others view it just as much as the appearance of the object itself. We love that. This episode of Direct Message dives into the how, what, and why of Craig Crafts, a creative DC, with a special focus on his experience as a working artist in this city and how he balances personal projects with all caps client work. Craig, thank you so much for being here.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, we would uh, normally start with the whole where are you from or brought mm-hmm. you to D.C., but we have like a four-foot kind of glowing elephant <laughs> in the room <laughs> that we have to address. Um, this neon sign that's just behind us um, is the centerpiece of full-service radio, mm-hmm. and this this came from you. You made this for us.
2: Yeah, we did. Uh, with your help, uh, this was a, a kind of project as part of my work as a neon artist, is to help others uh, realize their dreams and visions. And um, we have uh, I have several assistants that help me with that, um, a tube bender and then a fabricator <clears throat> to help put things together. So uh, this was that type of project. But, you know, I always get involved and, you know, help out with the uh, Picking out colors and the composition design of the overall um, signage.
1: Yeah, well, you nailed it over here. Um, (laughs) And for those of you listening, um, if you're listening live, you can tune into Creative DC's Instagram stories. Uh, We've got a photo of this sign up. um, And if you're listening later, you can catch it on the homepage at fullserviceradio.org. It really is a beautiful sign. Um, But that sign was very far from your first neon rodeo. (laughs) You've been working in this medium for decades. Um, And that's such a specialized area of art and sculpture. So I would love to hear how you got into this, you know, because your background is not, or at least in terms of education, was not art.
2: No, uh, I was, um, you know, kind of floundering after I got out of graduate school. I have have a master's degree in environmental education and uh, studies, and uh, But there was no work. I was probably about 20, 20 years ahead of <laughs> that field. And uh, you know I was a hippie in the counterculture back then, and um, we were encouraged to follow our own interests. So instead of uh, you know, getting a regular job, my own interest happened to be art, which was cultivated through um, experience with friends and some professional artists that were in New York City. So that's how it started, uh, getting into art. And uh, I I didn't work with neon to start with. I was uh, modeling the figure in clay and uh, doing some casting and painting on the figures. And uh, that went on for about five to seven years actually. And I started to get bored with the techniques. (laughs) It's pretty classical. And uh, I was just so fortunate and this made a big, big difference in my life. But the American School of Neon opened up in Minneapolis in 1983 and I was in their first workshops. And it was not run by a tube-bender. It was run by a conceptual artist out of the Art Institute there in Minneapolis, Cork Marcheski. And so it was viewed, and uh, we were studying it as a sculptural medium, not just a glowing line. And so that pretty much changed my work right from the start. I mean, I had to know the technique to do the neon, but I also uh, was keeping in mind how it was a part of a sculptural piece.
1: Wow, so really, kind of taking the trade element of it and really kind of elevating it to more of an art form. Yeah,
2: yeah, so
1: interesting. And when you're saying tube bender, can you explain what you mean by that? Because you are you're you're one of the you're one of the few in the United States, I think, who are still bending your own glass. Yeah,
2: I still bend my own glass. Uh, my projects got awful big uh, in the last fifteen years, and so. <laughs> I ended up uh, partnering with a commercial tube bender, basically someone who does signage and uh, border lettering uh, professionally. So they're bending glass uh, all day, every day. Um, you know, not all week, but anyway, they're, they're just immersed in the craft of neon tube bending. And basically, you know, just to give you a little detail about it, it, it comes in a four foot stick, it's about uh, a half inch uh, in diameter. And uh, the wall thickness is at about a sixteenth of an inch. So we're putting it in a fire, you know, bringing it up to molten temperature, you know, over 1,000 degrees. So it's basically getting a little soupy. and then we <laughs> Soupy glass. Soupy I love that. Soupy <laughs> glass. That's right. And then, then when we bend it, we bend it up, you know, and we blow into it with a little puff of air. And that keeps the diameter of the glass the same. But it is very, very tricky. It's a, it's a very tricky um, hand-eye coordinated craft. And we don't have many people that have an aptitude for it. Um, I had a little aptitude. Mostly I had a determination, (laughs) not so much aptitude. (laughs) And I just kept at it. But it really took me about five or six years before I could bend what I wanted to bend for my projects. But like I say, lately with the bigger projects, I, I have help with that bending.
1: Wow, I really love what you just said about it, the determination over the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> perhaps over natural yeah. born talent. I think able, yeah, stamina is yeah, so much yeah, yeah. of a it, career, it, right? It, it is. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, you have to be able to be cut. And burnt. <laughs> yeah, I can <laughs> and imagine. And keep working.
1: A thousand degrees. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, so you're kind of, you're learning the skill set of mm-hmm. it, and you're kind of learning it um, also in, in an art context. At what point did you realize that maybe this was a, this could be a, a career for you?
2: Well, I mean, I actually had, in the, when I was about 25 or 26, and uh, I was in New York City, you know, surrounded by, budding artists and some who you know, were mature artists, I uh, did some soul searching about what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and I had this epiphany, this moment where I knew I wanted to become an artist. And uh, from that moment on, uh, I was gonna be an artist almost, well, not almost, but no matter what. <laughs> happened to me and believe me financially that was a very a very poor decision <laughs> uh, to become an artist but uh, I, I was going to make it work and so I kept shifting um, trying to get trying to get as all artists need is some stability to their income so that they can work but uh, so the neon part was just part of my inquiry into becoming an artist but uh, when I saw the magic of the ca- I was using cast figures Body cast figures and fragments, and then the neon lighting around them. I was drawing around them, and I was backlighting them. It was so magical. I mean, I was just, I was just driven to use neon in my work from that moment on. And actually, all my works uh, since then have lighting as a component to them.
1: Wow. Oh, magic. I don't want to like stray from the magic to go back to financial (laughs) conversations, but I'm going to anyways. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it is fascinating. And thank you for the transparency there, because I think that is something it's it's kind of a universal, I think, that artists have to deal with. So, you know, when you're talking about stability and other income streams, um, you know, what were some paths that you went down? To, to ensure that that happened for you?
2: Well, at first, I, was, I tried to sell my work, you know, in any way I could. I, I did a lot of art fairs with my work, and I dragged it around the country to sell it. And I always had a few galleries, you know, that would supplement that, you know, for my income. And I did commission work, you know, that would help. But uh, what happened to me when I faced, for me, the first recession, real recession was about in 1989, 90, right in there. And I almost went broke. And by that time, I I had a family. I was married, and we had a small child, Travis. And uh, it was disastrous, you know, to be facing that kind of financial disaster. So uh, I decided at that point, you know, out of necessity, that I needed to have some baseline of income in order to continue this quest for my own artistic vision. And what I decided to do, and actually, I don't know who called who, but the Smithsonian Resident Associate Program called and wanted me to teach a neon light workshop. And so I took that assignment, and i actually still teaching that. I've taught it now for 25 years. Wow. And, and it gave me a little stability, and I met people from all over the metro area and beyond. Some became friends, some became clients, some became wow. continual students. And so that supplemented my income through exposure and just you know the, the pay that I got for doing it. Then I also decided that I would do design, which I still do. Like with you, I would do design work in neon. I wouldn't always create it. Many times, I, most times, I wouldn't. But I would work with a client and uh, work a project through for for their vision. And so that was another source of income. And then they start after I did neon for so long. I sort of became, you know, a national expert in neon. You know, probably around fifteen or twenty years of it. And uh, the Smithsonian started to call in other museums to restore historic artworks uh, for their museum collections. Uh, probably the most um, important um, restoration that I did was for a Jasper Johns painting that was created in 1956, and it had a double-stroke neon R with neon in it, the red-orange gas. And uh, I took it very carefully from the National Museum to my studio Mm
1: -hmm. very carefully (laughs)
2: and and I I didn't uh, open the box that it came in a steel box by the way or aluminum and I didn't open it for about over a week just trying to get my focus to complete 100% focus because you know of course you can't take it out and make any mistakes at all (laughs) (laughs) you'd have to leave town you know so uh, that was the beginning of uh, me doing restorations and like you say I Did some restorations for the African-American Museum, too. The Soul Train sign there and this Mitten's Playhouse I restored, which was a historical jazz club in Harlem from the 50s.
1: It is so interesting to me. that I feel like a lot of artists, a lot of career artists that you talk to in D.C. do kind of come in and out of Smithsonian's orbit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's good.
2: Yeah, it really is. We're very fortunate to have them as artists here in the city.
1: Yeah, we are. Um, So... Kind of going back to, you know, clients. So, I mean, so once you've restored a Jasper Johns piece, yeah. you know, I mean, that's, that really is a once in a lifetime opportunity. It sounds like, yeah. um, is neon doesn't seem like a repeat customer kind of business. So are you, how are you, how are people finding you? How are you finding them? I mean, besides your visibility, just having been doing it for 35 years,
2: um, uh, most, almost entirely through visibility. I mean, some people will, uh, find me through my website. You know, they'll just Google neon light sculpture or or something related to what I do and they'll find me that way. But, you know, once you've done this for so long and, you know, a lot of my art has been in, you know, one person shows and um, there's a lot of public art out there that a lot of people know. Who I am, you know, and they're just kind of waiting for that right moment to give me a call. Right. So I'm very fortunate that way, but it, it took a lot, a lot of work to get there.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. And so, are there are there other neon artists in D.C.? Like, are there are there folks in Baltimore who you kind of commune with? Do you guys have a club? Is there? <laughs> how does this work? It's a
2: little more national. You know, we used to have a, a few that uh, were actively doing um, more artwork with the neon here uh they they're they're not so much anymore and uh baltimore kind of the same way um i think that neon as an art form kind of went through this popularity phase in the 90s and um there were sales i think because it was neon and so some people got involved with that you know and they wanted to do works that were lit with neon but that kind of died down you know and so uh, it was only people like me left, really. <laughs> that was just going to do it no matter what, and that it really wasn't tied to um, a trend.
1: And, and so, where do you see it going? So, and, and I ask hmm. because I, you know, my uh, my parents were printers, and my parents and grandparents, and so they started out as typesetters. And you know, really, it's kind of, you know, i I'm, I'm not going to be like print is dead, but really, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the trade element of it has really tapered off, and there's not so many shops anymore. I mean, do you? What's going to happen with neon in the next 20 years? Because right now Urban Outfitter is a selling, you know, they're selling it, but who's, who's really making it?
2: Well, it's made by commercial shops just specialize in repetitive uh, kind of images or drawings. That's who's making that. Um, you know, LED has really cut into the commercial side of neon. You know, it's easy to install. You know, any, anybody pretty much can install LED and it's run on low voltage. So there's no real danger. You know involved with it, <clears throat> neon actually has a you know decent sized transformer and it runs off of anywhere from six thousand to twelve thousand volts so you have to have a, a lot of technical precautions in order for that to work you know, safety wise and so uh anyway you know it's it's kind of it, it, for a while I thought it might die almost completely commercially, but the thing is you know it's gotten under the skin of a lot of artists all over the world i mean if you go to the trade shows. Um, Art trade shows, you know, like in Miami or New York, there's quite a bit of neon. You know, artists will decide that for their image, for this one piece, you know, they're going to use neon. So uh, I think that's not going to die at all. It's just not going to die. It may be used less and less, you know, in the commercial world.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I love where you took that. Um, kind of taking it back to the art fairs and the art galleries. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great little time for a station break. <laughs> um, you've been listening to Direct Message. Uh, I'm your host Morgan West. We've been chatting with neon artist and sculptor Craig Kraft. When we come back. We're going to talk more about his art focus, um, about what life looks like for him as a full time working artist in D.C. Um, on workspace in D.C. and again on Craig's personal projects. So this is Direct Message. We'll be right back.
0: Today's break music, courtesy of Flash Frequency, fellow Full Service Radio host, photographer Adams Morgan Local. This one's called The Last, and you can find his music at flashfrequency.bandcamp.com. This is Full Service Radio. We'll be right back with a direct message.
1: Everybody, welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is direct message with a Creative DC. We're with DC artist Craig Kraft. Um, Craig Studio is in the Anacostia neighborhood of Southeast. He's over on Good Hope Road. He's got some really great neighbors in, with the Anacostia Arts Center, with On Floor Gallery, um, with Arts Nonprofit Project Create DC. These are just a few of your neighbors, um, but you're part of a very robust little arts community over there, east of the river. How did you end up over there?
2: Well, I was uh, in a firehouse on our street for 25 years. I think I might've mentioned that and uh, just sort of naturally came to an end as the neighborhood evolved. I kind of got out of here <laughs> and I looked around for another place. And besides it was time to sell the firehouse. You know, I'd appreciate it quite a bit. And then of course the big challenge, where do you go? you know, after that big firehouse, you know, that was 6,000 6, square feet.
1: Yeah, uh, tell us more about this firehouse, because I feel mm-hmm. like this is like a pipe dream for, like, artists in D.C. right now. So you had a whole, you had a whole uh, building.
2: We had a whole building. I was married when we got it, so I had a partner. She's an artist, too. And so we kind of split everything. That helped. But it was just the two of us. And we were able to buy that at a, quite a low price, even for back then in uh, 1992. Um because it was it really was Shaw, Shaw was a war zone. I mean, there were just it was death and destruction and drugs and prostitutes in Shaw, and most people were afraid to be there. You know, I mean, really afraid. But uh, the building is what got us to buy it. It's a beautiful historic building. It's uh, the 200 most important Black African African-America, uh, American African American sites in the city, and it
1: was the first um, Black firehouse. Black,
2: yeah, it, first and probably the. I think even the only black all black firehouse uh because of prejudice and discrimination, uh the black firefighters decided they'd just have more power if they all all went into one location, which worked out pretty good for them, really.
1: Wow. So, and how did you? How long were you in that building? And you moved into Anacostia in twenty fifteen. Is that right?
2: Um, I was in that building for twenty five years. Wow. Uh, sold the building, and then, like I say, I was looking for space. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to get a warehouse to have enough room. So my projects are pretty big. And I looked around at warehouses, <clears throat> and it seemed like they were just kind of in these remote areas. And I felt like if I got in it, I would just be kind of lost there you mm-hmm. know and I do I do need stimulation you know from the galleries the people the artists you know the creative force in the city and uh, warehouse district didn't didn't seem to have that really and so I started to look for more buildings that were more a part of the city more a part of the, part of the, um, the community and, you know, I looked at quite a few, but then I, I found this abandoned building that had been abandoned for 50 years. So it was it was just totally d- destroyed pretty much, you know, and uh, the Anacostia Arts Center and the Arch Development Corporation there, uh, Duane Gautier, he he uh, he helped, he encouraged me. You know, of course, he was just, exci- of course, very excited to get the the building between the Honfleur Han- Gallery and the Anacostia Arts Center um, developed, especially by an artist. So. Um, I went ahead and bought that building and started a almost two year process of renovating it, and uh, it took me about nine. I got a nine month delay there because of permits from the city. <laughs> Eventually got got it done, and I have my new space there, which I love. I love living there, and like you say, it's it's a lot of art happening there. It's sort of like. Some, some of it that's exciting is it's a, it's a lot of our, a good percentage of artists are kind of just starting there so they have they have their own unique energy in itself you know and so I'm seeing exhibits by them and you know I, uh, I previously knew some of the people that work at the art Center there at the uh, Anacostia Art Center so that's been great kind of a reunion too so. Yeah, I, I mean, I love being on that block. It's, it's kind of the art block, you know, it of really Anacostia. Is.
1: It is, yeah. Um, for those of you listening, you really, you can't miss Craig's studio. It's just to the left of the Anacostia <laughs> Art Center. And as you can imagine, as a neon artist and sculptor, it glows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very cool. I've come and I visit, and, you know, you've got, it is very much a working studio. I will say it is one of the neatest, most tidy <laughs> art studios <laughs> I've ever visited. <laughs> but I guess when you're dealing with, you know, a thousand degrees and... <laughs> kind of heating things up all the time. You probably need an element of sanity <laughs> over there. Yeah, a little order. A little order, um, and so you you live above the studio as well, and so live workspace has kind of always been something that you've been able to to have.
2: Yeah, I think I think almost the, my entire career, I have had that. I think my one of my first studios was uh, in New Orleans, and uh, I had a I had a row house uh, in the Faubourg Marini there, and. You know, I I turned the upstairs a little, it was a shotgun, which means there's a a room on the back of uh, the the narrow building, and that was the studio up there. And then, of course, I lived downstairs. Uh, And then I moved to Minneapolis, and I rented a a corner grocery store, but it had a little, basically a little efficiency apartment in the back. And so the the grocery store part was my studio, and it was uh, beautifully called the garden level. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh i love that it's amazing so you've made this work for yourself you've made it work in other cities you've made it work here um you know i think to kind of go back to what you're saying when you you know when you were leaving shaw when you were looking around your your practice takes up a lot of work um and i think a lot of times you know when we talk about dc you know we're certainly not a city of industrial spaces right mm-hmm. um you know was there thought of was there anything that entered your mind at any point that you may not be able to continue to do it in DC? Like, have you ever, you know, over the course of your years here, have you ever thought about packing it up and moving to Baltimore and <laughs> getting more <laughs> space for cheaper? You know, what does that look like for you?
2: Well, I have so many roots here, you know, so many artists and and so many people in the galleries and in the museums that, um, are part of my life and friends, of course, like that. And <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, right now, I, I, I'd probably stay here almost almost no matter what. And then, you know, I got I got lucky, whatever you want to call it, and found this building in Anacostia. And it was kind of like when I moved into Shaw in some ways, you know. So a little bit of a pioneer, you know, over there to renovate a building in that kind of shape, uh, which I did in the firehouse as well. Um, that one was not really, really rehabbed it much at all. So, you know, I was... Still up. I had the energy to start it all over again, basically.
1: Well, I think it's interesting. You know, we kind of kicked things off by talking about, you know, your mission statement about, you know, art affecting place. And, you know, I think um, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Arch, um, Arch Development and Anacostia, their mission is to create in partnership with the residents and stakeholders of the neighborhood, a home for arts, culture and small businesses that fulfill our commitment to the revitalization of historic Anacostia. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, everything yeah. fits nicely. It does fit together. very well. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let's talk about something I think is a, <laughs> a hot topic for all artists. Um, you really, you know, I think the bulk of your income comes from commission, work um, but you really have cultivated a lifelong studio practice Um, when I visited your studio this past summer you were working on immortalizing your inauguration protest sign (laughs) which I know has since been completed I've seen that on Instagram Um, and you just got back from Namibia you were doing you were on a research and visual research trip so can you talk about I guess maybe start by talking about how do you find time for your work and how do you prioritize it and can you prioritize it still even at this point?
2: Uh, yeah, it's always the top priority is my my own personal work. Um, like I say, I've developed these other areas uh, that I do work, and I'm very lucky that they're really all light-related. So, uh, you know, something I might learn in, like, your on-sign, you know, I could later use in one of my fine art pieces. So they kind of feed back and forth. Um, I'm very lucky that way. But, uh, you know, I just... I just have this have continued to be so fortunate to have this drive to to learn new things, and to express myself in ways you know that I haven't before. And for the past eight years, really, I've been uh, exploring through my own work and then through through trips to three different continents, uh, the universal urge to connect through marking. And the way I got to that was is you know eventually, and other people too have seen neon that way. Is it's a great marking tool, you know, not only for letters, but to, to draw on buildings and do drawings. And, and so I thought, well, geez, you know, this is a contemporary marking tool. Where did that all start? Mm-hmm. And it drove me uh, to uh, the original cave drawings in France and Spain, some of those being almost 40,000 years old and uh, crawling deep into these caves and viewing those marks, which really, they're hermetically sealed by those two countries, so they're in pristine shape. And then after that, uh, I, it was discovered in the next three or four months that the very oldest marks made by early Homo sapiens were in Sulawesi, Indonesia. So uh, my companion Libby Harris and I went to Indonesia to, to visit these caves and it took months of preparation because not just everybody can see those sites. The government is very restrictive. So we had to have, you know, tons of recommendations from the Smithsonian, even from the ambassador to Indonesia had to write one here, which I didn't even know. So I had to, you know, show material for that recommendation.
1: (laughs) Start a new friendship. (laughs) Right.
2: And uh, we got permission and we went to, um, we we were given, we had to pay a small fee, but we got a guide, uh, a driver, and a translator. And uh, the guide really was an archaeologist. So this was an incredible opportunity to explore these early marks there. <clears throat> and from that I wrote an article which was published. I spent you know quite a bit of time exploring and writing. And then my latest trip was, like you say, this last summer I went to Namibia because there it's different. If the marks are nowhere near as, as old. They're only like 500 to only. 500 to 8,000 <laughs> yeah. years old. It's all relative. But the indigenous group, the sons, uh, are still alive and in, in a restricted way, still practicing the same cultural things that led to those, those rock art drawings and etchings. So I was able to experience um, the sons doing the trance dance, uh, which is um, a dance that's both for healing and improving the lot of uh, the tribe. And uh, from that trance dance, there's visions that, that are generated by the shaman. And that's really the basis for the art. So I was able to not only see the rock art there, you know, literally thousands of rock art examples in four or five sites, but I was able to see a living example of a group of people, probably the oldest indigenous people in the world by most accounts, their cultural practice that led to those drawings. And then I've just realized, uh, sometimes it takes a long time for these things to sink in, but I just realized that the third component of that was being on safari. Because at first we thought, well, we'll go on safari in between the real trip, which is Mm the rock art and the sands. And uh, then when I got back, you know, I got these herds of, you know, elephants and zebras and hyenas and uh, springbok and other antelope. And the most important one to the sands was the eland. Uh, was so powerful and then it kind of put it together where oh my god that's they were here and that's what they were seeing all, uh, on a daily they lived those animals they hunted those animals they lived in the same they walked the same ground and so that was a third and essential component to the inspiration for the rock art was the animals that were in that area in, in Africa
1: it's unbelievable and it all comes back to context I it think it does yeah wow so I, you know, I love what you said about um, personal work, just you've made it a priority and therefore it's a priority. And I mm-hmm. think I'm, I'm going to put that in my pocket <laughs> <laughs> as I move forward and try to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, Craig, this is just so wonderful to hear a little bit more about what you do and how you do it. Um, and... Each guest we want to ask, but especially you, I think you're going to have so much to offer here. We ask, we ask each of our guests to elaborate on the Creative DC tagline, which is your life looks good here. So if there's something about your Creative Washington DC, about your career, it can be advice, a recommendation. You know, What would you like to share with this audience?
2: Well, um, obviously, DC has been very good to me. <laughs> I mean, what the, the, my visions and things that I've created have been very well accepted. Um, The community itself has been very supportive. And, you know, a piece of advice I would give, and it's not that uncommon a piece of advice, but is to find that passion, and then second, to share it with people. Because once you share a passion with people, not everybody, but most of those people will start to think of how they can help you. So by not only realizing what you want to do, you're also gaining a group of people, or even more, it could be institutions, galleries, museums, that could help you realize that, that, uh, that vision that you have for your work. And uh, that happened here for me. You know, I told plenty of people about what I was thinking of doing, <laughs> and it kind of went from this gallery to that gallery and this commission to that commission, based on really all back to my commitment to what I wanted to do, what my vision for my own artistic practice was.
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing. It's You're a welcome. journey. It's a journey we're all just making our marks as we can. <laughs> that's it. Craig, thank you so much. So where can we find you? Where are you currently sharing your, <laughs> your journey and your process?
2: Well, right now I'm uh, preparing for a one-person show and I have a, a couple, three different places that I'm um, talking with about where that will be. And I'm working on um, the, the work that's inspired by my trip to Namibia. So that's all happening at my studio, and that's you know, open to the public to see actually you know, the whole show uh, in, in process. So that's one place. But you know, I've, uh, to see my work, of course, I have a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of public art out there uh, in different cities, um, and my work can be seen there as well. Um, you know, I always have a piece at my gallery in, in Philadelphia, the Seraphin Gallery, And uh, and so I'm working with them, too, to to have a more elaborate showing there. So so there's a lot of things happening with me.
1: Yeah, Yeah, lots in the air. That's a good thing. That's a good thing for the beginning of the year, for 2018. It is. Oh, well, Craig, thank you so much, sincerely, and I hope to see you again soon. <laughs> well, I'm sure I will.
2: Thank you for asking me.
1: Um, that's it, guys. You can expect direct message weekly. Uh, we just spent a half hour with DC artist, neon sculptor Craig Craft. We will be back next week. You can catch us live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on fullserviceradio.org. Uh, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at A Creative DC, and online at AcreativeDC.com. Our team includes Makita Solomon, Pammy Carroll, Damon King, and YOU. This project would not exist without perspective outside of our own, and we are grateful to be able to take these weekly dives into the A Creative DC hashtag feed. Big thanks to our partners at Full Service Radio and to the folks at Simplecast. You can follow along with Full Service Radio at fullserviceradio.org, at Full Service Radio on Instagram, and at Full Service RDO on Twitter. Till next week, I'm Morgan West, and this has been Direct Message with A Creative DC.
0: theme song also by flash frequency it's called sunrise from his record shadow fox find him at flashfrequency.bandcamp.com again he also hosts a show here on full service thursdays called leaf broadcast thanks for listening